Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Week 16 edition of Flight Deck, an inside look at the New York Jets. I'm your host, Rich Samini. I cover the Jets for ESPN. The Jets win. They win. No, they lose. They lose. This is such a confusing time to be a Jets fan. Shocking win over the Rams on Sunday. One of the biggest upsets in Jet history. It creates ripple effects that will be felt for years and years. And we're going to get into that deeply in a second. First, I want to thank you for being here. I want to wish everyone happy holidays and hope you're enjoying the season and staying safe. And thanks so much for spending a little time here at Flight Deck. In the second quarter, we're going to talk to ex-Jets defensive lineman Mike DeVito, one of the real blood and guts defensive linemen from those really good Jets playoff teams in 09 and 10 under Rex Ryan. He's a really thoughtful guy, and I'm really curious to get his response to Eric Bieniemy. Uh Mike finished his career in Kansas City. He knows Eric, and Eric, I think, will be on the Jets coaching radar once we get into the offseason, so I'm curious to get his take on that. But for now, we have to deal with the win, the loss, whatever you want to call it. It definitely has fallout. I did a Twitter survey on Sunday after the game. I got 12,000 responses, and about 85% of the fans replied that they were crushed by the win, that they fear it cost them a shot at Trevor Lawrence. Look, I get it. This may have been the costliest win in Jet history, but don't blame the players and don't blame the coaches. They are paid to win, and that's what they're trying to do. Not very well obviously, this season, but their job is to win. You don't want guys in the locker room or in the coaches' rooms who have a loser's mentality. When people accept losing in the building, it just creates a bad culture. The Jets have had that for a decade. You don't want that anymore. So I am happy for the players. I really am. They've been busting their ass all year, and I'm happy they got this win. You don't want to be associated with 0-16. You just you don't want that on your record, your resume, whatever you want to call it. So I'm happy for those guys and the coaches. But, you know, I understand the fans' plight. This is a really tough one to swallow because Trevor Lawrence, by all accounts, is going to be a generational prospect. It's tough. It's tough. And there's really no one to blame. This just happens. So don't blame the players. Don't blame the coaches. It, it just happens. And you know what, though? It's not over yet. It's not over. There are two weeks left in the season. And if the Jets can beat the Rams, I mean, hey, maybe Jacksonville can knock off Chicago, who's 7-7, seven and seven, or maybe the Indianapolis Colts at 10-4. and four. Look, Chicago still have Mitch Trubisky. And I know he's been playing better lately, but he's still Mitch Trubisky, so you never know. And maybe... Maybe, I'm just throwing this out there, in the last week of the year, if Indy has their playoff positioning secured, maybe they rest their starters and the Jaguars kind of luck into a victory. I don't know. I'm just throwing out a bright side there to try to cheer you up a little bit on a dreary postmortem. But uh, I think the question we have to tackle here is, if the Jets do get the number two pick, what does it mean? Well, number one, it means their coaching job is going to be less attractive without Trevor Lawrence. There is no two ways about that. That would have been one of the most appealing things about taking the Jet job. The chance to coach a player, a prospect of his ilk, 
now there's a good chance that won't happen. And so that that's that creates a little issue there for Joe Douglas because I think the Jets go from maybe the first or second best coaching opening to middle of the pack or even toward the bottom of the pack. And I'm anticipating anywhere from five to eight openings. So that's number one. And number two, it really increases the chances of Sam Darnold returning. The way it is right now, and this is my opinion as we're speaking here in Christmas week, December 2020. So it could change. But right now, I don't see how you can take a quarterback with the number two pick. I've watched Justin Fields of Ohio State in in the Indiana game and against Northwestern. He did not play well in either of those games. I don't see him as being worth the second pick in the draft. I see a great athlete with a really good arm who lacks the instinct for the position. He doesn't look natural. He looks somewhat robotic, methodical when he's going through his reads. It's like when his number one read is covered, he creates indecision. He seems a bit tentative. And I don't know, call me old school, but I just think that's stuff that you really can't teach. That inner clock that a quarterback has, that ability to quickly process information. Either you have it or you don't. And I don't see enough of it right now to make him the second pick in the draft. Now, there are other quarterbacks who will be drafted in the first round. I'm checking my handy-dandy Mel Kuyper big board, and he's got Zach Wilson of BYU at number 14, Mac Jones of Alabama at 15, and Trey Lance of North Dakota State at 16. So what that tells me is he's got three quarterbacks in the middle of the round, which means you know they show a lot of promise, but they're not in the quote-unquote elite category. So if I'm picking second, I want someone in the elite category. So that tells me I'm probably not going to pick a quarterback at two. Now, look, we know the supply and demand of quarterbacks is great. And quarterbacks rise, often dramatically, during the pre-draft process. So it's conceivable that one or more of these other quarterbacks could skyrocket during the scouting process and shoot up to number two. But always be wary of those. I want to evaluate guys based on game tape, not how they throw the ball in a shorts and a t-shirt in a controlled environment. So be wary of those fast risers. So as it stands now, I'm holding the second pick and I'm going to pick the best available player. And the Jets are looking at you guys like Panay Sewell, the offensive tackle from Oregon. You got Devontae Smith, the wide receiver from Alabama, and Jamar Chase, the wide receiver from LSU. So you're going to add an offensive piece at number two, a really, really good blue-chip offensive piece to help Sam Darnold. That's the way I think the Jets have to go right now. I I don't see how they have much choice here. Uh, Sewell would be a great bookend to Makai Becton. Sewell is a left tackle, but you, you could make him a right tackle or vice versa. And Devontae Smith, I mean, you're talking about a Heisman candidate. I mean, that guy is electric. You put him out there with Denzel Mims and Jamison Crowder, and then you're talking about something special. And the same goes for Jamar Chase, who obviously opted out this year, but we know he is a big-time talent. So I think if you're Joe Douglas, you know, you have to des- decide how those quarterbacks are ranked. If you feel like one of them is really good uh, but not quite worth the second pick, you could always look at the possibility of trading down a few spots. Carolina currently at the four spot. Atlanta currently at the five spot. Could be looking for long-term solutions at quarterback. 
you could get a bundle of draft picks by moving down two or three spots and then taking either a quarterback or another skill position player. So that's an option for Joe Douglas. But the way it stands now, in mid to late December, I think it really looks like Sam Darnold will be back. And what you're hoping, if you're Joe Douglas, you got to hire a coach who can fix Sam Darnold. Because we're talking about a quarterback who's been below average, statistically, for three years straight. Now, he still has some positive traits. You saw him on Sunday play a very efficient game. I thought he was a good game manager on Sunday. Didn't make any killer mistakes. Knew how to protect the football. Threw it out of bounds when everyone was covered. So you can build around him if you get a coach to fix him and add more pieces. And just hope that works. There's also the contract issue. It's not great. He's only got a year left on his rookie deal. And you can't tell me he's worth a $25 million fifth-year option at this point. So it's not a great situation for the Jets. You basically roll in with Darnold, hoping he can improve. And if he does next year, then you either have to franchise tag him or you have to extend him, and you're getting into the big, big money in 2022. And if you draft a rookie quarterback, you know, you get that guy at four years, $36 million. You don't have to worry about the big, big money until four or five years down the road. So clearly this is not an optimal situation for the Jets to be in. But as it stands now, I would say they're probably going to roll with Darnold at, and then take someone else with the two pick and possibly even trade out of that two spot to make a killing on some draft picks. Uh, that's the way I see it going right now. It could have been a whole lot easier if they just kept losing and ended up with the one pick. It's a no-brainer. You take Trevor Lawrence. But unless something screwy happens in the next couple of weeks, Trevor Lawrence is going to be playing in Jacksonville, and the Jets are going to have to think about life without Trevor Lawrence. And this is the second quarter, and I'd like to welcome in our guest this week. He is a former Jets and Chiefs defensive lineman, played with the Jets from 2007 to 2012, and actually made the team as an undrafted free agent and became one of their cogs on their teams that made the AFC Championship game 10 years ago. I'd like to welcome in a good friend, Mike DeVito. Mike, thanks for taking the time. Rich, it's so awesome to be here, brother. It's really an honor. I miss you a lot, man. I miss being out there with you guys. So how you doing? Well, this is bad. Thank you. We miss you too, Mike. This has been a tough year to cover the Jets. And uh, really, a lot of conflicting emotions for fans right now because they beat the Rams yesterday, which was a huge shock. And they may have cost themselves the number one pick. And, and the fans are angry. Yeah. I'm just wondering – you know, you played in the league for a long time. What's the player's perspective? I know you never had a season this bad, but you went through right. some tough ones. And maybe just share with the fans what the players are, are thinking after getting a win like that. Gosh, Rich, it, I, you know, it's so interesting seeing it now from two perspectives, right, as a Jets fan and as a former player. I think as a former player, you know, when I look at these guys and what they've gone through this year, um, my goodness, I'm so happy they got that win. The last thing you want is to be one of those few NFL teams that goes down in history as being, you know, finishing the season 0-16. I mean, who wants to be a part of something like that? Uh, and so I'm so happy for those guys. And you, you know, Rich, like this, 
this team lacks some talent in some key areas. They, they, you know, the coaching has been all over the place. Um, but you've got some fighters on that team. I mean, you got some guys that come out to play every single week. And so for those guys who put in so much, uh, for the young guys who are learning, who are competing against some of the top players in the NFL that normally wouldn't get this chance if you were on a better team, who are out there giving it everything they got, uh, I'm really, really happy for those guys. As a fan, I, I totally understand, right? I mean, it's just yeah, it, it, it stinks because now, now you're, you're fighting to try to get that number one spot where you were a shoe-in before. And that's, I mean, you see, you see with Patrick Mahomes, you see with teams that have, um, you know, that, that number one quarterback. I mean, that's what makes, the, that's what makes the, the big difference. And now I know Sam Donald, I think he's a good quarterback. Uh, but everybody's really, really high on this kid from Clemson. And so, you know, you, 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 as a fan, you're thinking, dang, we really have opportunities to get him and maybe change the course of our, of our organization uh, in the same way that Kansas City did. Um, and so I, I get that. I understand that. And I think they're, they're right to feel that way. But uh, I feel I'm so happy for the players. I'm so happy for the players. And as a former player, I can't imagine what it was like to go through the season. So for them to finally get a W uh, really – uh, I'm just, I'm happy for those guys. Well, one of those guys, uh, a good building block for them, and I know this will be, uh, you know, near and dear to your heart because he plays your position, is Quinn and Williams, who's just, you know, really blossomed this year. You were an interior uh, guy. You, you made your living in the trenches. What are your thoughts on Quinn? Now, he did get hurt yesterday, but, he, you know, he's having a really good year. Yeah, and I thought I really enjoyed watching him last year. I, he's a guy that uh, – has has he he just he's so multifaceted there's so many things you get from this guy right like if you need him to take on double teams and scoop blocks and protect your backers he's perfect for that if you need him to get seven sacks up the middle as a defensive tackle which is incredibly difficult he can give you that we can see he can give you that now as well i mean just watching him over the course of the last two years and how is he's developed um has been fun to watch and you you know rich how important it is to have an interior guy like that a cog like that, and especially when you have a guy that can do it all, that can rush the passer, that can stop the run, that can doesn't have to come off the field on third down that I did, like I did, or in two minute situations, things like that. Um, and, and you know what? I, I he's a. It's hard not to love him. You listen to his post comp, you know, post game press conferences and his interviews, and he's just an awesome, an awesome kid with a great heart. And he goes out there and plays a hundred miles an hour. Um, and so you're exactly right. There are some guys on this this Jets team, obviously the year didn't go as we wanted it to, but there's some guys that you look at and say, damn, we're in good, we're in good shape there. And some really key positions, right? Interior, defensive line, left tackle, uh, strong safety. I mean, you have some guys in place that are going to make a, that are going to be big for the Jets moving forward. Um, and he's one of them. And, and, you know, to have a young guy like that at a key position playing at that level, as a Jets fan, you gotta, I mean, you gotta be happy about that. Well, speaking of interior, I mean, I think, you know, you and Sione, when you guys were together, the Jets had a great interior. And, I mean, that defense in 2009 and 2010, most people know like Darrell Rivas and Cromartie, but you guys were the blood and guts players who held down the, you know, the run defense. What do you, what do you, when, I can't believe it's been 10 years. What, what mm. kind of memories flash into your mind when you think back at those two championship games that you guys? Oh, Rich, I miss it so much. I mean, that was the, that was the, pinnacle of my career and I had some awesome times out in Kansas City uh and we we won some games and won some playoff games and, and that was fun but there was nothing like going to back-to-back AFC championship games you know with the Jets I mean that just 
the highlight of my career to get to play under Rex Ryan, to get to be a part of a defense that, you, like you said, that had so many incredible players. Um, I mean, so good, Rich, that Sione and I, on, we only had to worry about stopping the run, right? We didn't have to worry about being these world beater pass rushers because we had Revis and Cromarty. You know, so you had number one and number two shut down, and then you had Rex Ryan's defense where he's bringing people from all over the place and you're doing simulated pressures and all of that. And so, oh, it was just, it was just such a great time out there in New York. And I think the most, one of the most disappointing things for my career when I look back is 2011 because I think we still had a lot of those pieces in place to do it again, and we just allowed the infighting and all that stuff to get in the way. But I, I almost feel like, man, we could have done that three years in a row. Um, but yeah, that was a lot of fun, Ritz. I miss those times, and I'm I'm really excited for New York to get back to that place, oh. uh, to get back there, and 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 to get to winning those games and playing playoff games. I mean, geez, I'm crow. Ten years, it's, it's unbelievable. We got it. We got to get back to the playoffs, and and so I don't know what what your thoughts are about this offseason. I'd love to hear them because you you know way more about it than I do. But how this team moves forward to build a roster, to build a coaching staff, to build an organization that's back to those you know, those 2009, 2010 years, uh, I'm just, you know, I'm hoping and wishing for that. Well, I think they have to create an identity. They, they lack yeah. an identity right now. Yes. Like you guys in those days had an identity. It was kind of a team had a lot of swagger, which I think yeah. stemmed from Rex Ryan. And you knew it was a defensive team that was just going to run the ball down your throat you know, with a really yeah. strong offensive line. That, that team had an identity. And I think that's the Jets black right yeah, and Rich, isn't that New York? Isn't that isn't that like a New York? That's that's the type of team you need. You that's you're exactly right. That identity, right? Rex brought in the, that mantra, "Play like a Jet," and it was we were going to be nasty. We were going to run the football. We were going to be the bully on defense that you didn't want to play. And that's New York. That's what it means to be in New York. And you you got to be a special type of player to play in New York. And it's not just about your talent on the field. You got to have that swagger. You got to have that nasty. You you know, Rich. I mean, it, it's that's the type of the atmosphere you're in, and that, that's what the that's what the crowds that with the with the media with the with the uh, fan base demands of you. And so you can't just go out there and be a group of guys like you could in these other 31 spots in, in New York. You got to be you got to be tough. And so you're right. The identity that's that's exactly what they need. Yeah, I, I don't want to bring up a bad memory, but I mean, that Pittsburgh game in the championship, um, I, I thought you guys were winning, going to win that game based on how well you played the previous week against New England. It, it, is that game still haunt you 10 years later? Rich, I mean, I, I know you know it, and, and I've said it um, elsewhere, but I, I blew it. I mean, I was one of the factors for losing that game, and, and it kills me. I mean, we talk about it's the lowest point of my career, but when we, we had finally pulled our way out of the hole and gotten back into the game in the second half and we were on defense and all we needed to do was get a stop, get a, get a three and out and get the ball back to the offense with time left to, to go down and score. And they were hot. They had finally picked up and they right. were going. And we had an odd front, a three man front and, and I was playing end and all I needed to do, you know, you know, Rich, I wasn't going to Dwight Franey and spin and get a sack. All I needed to do was rush up field and keep Roethlisberger in the pocket. This was a third down play. If they converted, they could kneel the ball and, and, and end the game. But if we stopped them, you know, we give the ball back to our offense with time to, to score. 
and I friggin' rushed up field, and at one second I dipped inside a little bit on my tackle, and as soon as I did that, Roethlisberger rolled out past where I was supposed to be, and and was able to complete the pass for the first down and and get you know and run the clock out, and so all I had to do was stay up field, uh, and so yeah, when I look back at that and look at how close we were. And to think, man, all I had to do was just stay there and maybe my team would have been, you know, going to the Super Bowl. Uh, it's killer. That, that game is killer. So uh, th- that's, you know, that's, that's life in the NFL. That's football. Um, yeah, that's football. It's something that haunts me. But you're right. I mean, that, we, were, we, were so, we were so close. So close. <laughs> <laughs> I, and you played on some, uh, some screwy teams, too. You, you mentioned the 2011 team, a team that became very divided with, you know, St. Yeah. Jones and, and Sanchez and – I'll never forget that last day of the season when they, they threw Santonio out of the huddle in, yeah. in Miami. And then in 2012, the Tebow season. What was yeah. that like, being part of that spectacle? Yeah, I was so worried going into 2012 because I knew we didn't replace the – we didn't have the people we needed. I could tell looking at the roster that this isn't going to get it done. I knew going into training camp. Um, so I, I, 2012, I kind of figured it was going to play out the way it did. Um, 2011, yeah, the, the infighting was just too much. And I think we lost some key leaders. You, you know the way Rex builds a team, right? I mean, he, he's going to he's, – you're going to get your, your personalities that are going to win you games on Sunday but also have some locker room presence that you need to account for. And he's going to get you some guys that are great, great leaders that are going to hold everybody accountable, that are going to keep some of the louder guys in check. And I think we lost some of the leaders – and we didn't replace them with, with other leaders. And that's on me as well. You know, you, you got to step up and, and be that guy. And so I think we had some, some, some of the bigger personalities in the locker room um, kind of running free without that, that leadership, keeping guys in check. And so I think that was killer. And, and I saw firsthand how quick a team can, uh, when a locker room's bad, how quick a team can just, you know, eat it apart. And so, uh, and you've seen it. You, know, you see it in other places. You see it in Dallas and all the time. They always have all-stars. They can't get it done. Uh, but that team had the talent. They had the ability to do it. And, and yet the, the infighting and that stuff totally, uh, totally treaded our chances of getting that done. And so that's, that's frustrating because getting the talent and building the roster and having the coaching staff, that's hard to do. And so when you have that and don't capitalize on it, that's incredibly frustrating. So, yeah, so 2011 was another frustrating year. Uh, and it taught me how important it is to have great leadership in a locker room to balance out, you know, the talent. Yeah, that's a very interesting point. I think I don't think enough GMs put enough emphasis on on those intangibles like team building and the importance of chemistry. And uh, I mean, then you go to a place like Kansas City and you were there for Andy Reid's first year. And, and so you had uh, three years in Kansas City. You made the playoffs twice and you were around some really, really good coaches, you know, with Andy and Doug Peterson was a coordinator and Eric Bieniemy, I think, I, you know, was a running backs coach there. Yeah. Uh, and he's going to be a, a hot candidate, perhaps even for the Jets if they change coaches, which we expect they will. Did you get to know Eric at all, uh, being on the other side of the ball? And what were your imp- impressions on, oh. you know, what, what he might be as a coach? So Eric Bieniemy, I would um, – walk out to training camp and he'd oh I was oh you know Rich I pride myself being the first one and Eric was always out there before me working out the running backs and he just had this Eric has this personality about him 
uh, and the way he coaches guys and how he coaches them hard, but he loves them hard as well. Very much like a Carl Dunbar. Him and Carl Dunbar are very similar. Um, and I remember telling him every, <laughs> every day I'd walk out there early and be like, man, I got to come play running back or you got to come over and coach. Like, I want you to be my coach. Like, how do I get you to be my coach? You know, yeah. I mean, he's one of those guys that you just, you love, love, love to play for. Awesome personality, fired up, ready to go, tough guy. But at the same time, you know, he loves you and cares about you. Uh, and that, that's Andy Reid. I mean, talk about a team that had talent. We were going in there 2000, 2013. I mean, that, that team had everybody. You had Tom Bahali in his prime, Justin Houston in his prime. Derek Johnson is prime. Eric Berry, you bring in Alex Smith. You got Dwayne Bowe. I mean, you have all-stars, Brandon Flowers. You have everybody, Rich. I mean, you had all the pieces were in place. So really, all you needed was that identity and that philosophy. And that's what Andy Reid brings. I mean, you you spend you know a short amount of time with Andy Reid. You know he knows how to win. He knows how to get it done. Um, and he was really sort of in the middle between Rex and and Eric Mangini, right? So you had Mangini, who's the Belichick cloth, who's going to micromanage everything. He wants, you know, you're going to have to worry about the littlest things, uh, which has its place, which I think, which was really effective for me coming in the league. But, it, you know, the littlest things matter. Then you had Rex, who was, listen, I don't care what you do. We're just going to win on Sunday. Like, as long as we win on Sunday, we're good. And, and um, Andy's right in the middle, right, where he had, he had the rules, he had the routines, he had, you know, he had the stuff that mattered to him. Everything had a reason. Uh, but at the same time, he gave you freedom, let you be men, and, and, and let your personality shine. And he always talked about, go out there and let your personality show. So he was right in the middle of Rex and Mangini. And just an easy guy to say, oh, yeah, I'm going to follow him because he knows, you can just tell. I mean, one day with him, you know, he has such a systematic approach to the game. He knows what he's doing. Uh, so it's easy to buy in. And so when you mix him with all the talent, I mean, even before Pat Mahomes, you know, we, we might not have had the talent to get us over the hump and into the Super Bowl. But we had some damn good teams. I mean, right now, 2013 and now, the only year that we didn't make it was 2014 to the playoffs. And that was because we had a ton of injuries. Um, So, yeah. So, Andy Reid and those guys out there have done a fantastic job. Then you add Pat Mahomes and Tyree Kill and Travis Kelsey, and then now you're you're going back-to-back Super Bowls and things like that. Yeah. So, I, I mean, you're a New York guy, you, you know, uh, you know what the market is like. So you think the enemy has has the uh, presence to if, if they were to go in that direction? How do you think he would handle New York? Uh, he is the perfect guy for New York. Per- Rich, and I'm not just saying this to say it. He he's the perfect guy. for New- I mean, because he's he's similar to Rex Ryan in the sense that one, you know, he you know, he loves you. You know, he has your back. And that's so that's so important. That's so important when you're building the team to know that the head coach, uh, when you're, when you're a player to know the head coach is really pulling for you. And so Rex did that and the enemy, you know, the enemy going to have that. And at the same time, he has that toughness and that grit. Um, uh, and so he, he's going to be a guy who can handle the pressure, who can handle the criticism. And now you couple that with spending all those years with, with Andy Reid, where he knows the system, he knows the philosophy, he knows what it takes to win games. He knows what it takes to win big games. Um, and so, Oh man, EB would be, perfect in new york i'll be i'll be calling him on the phone saying give me a position at janitor whatever you have open i want to come be a part of that organization and you'll have players and coaches doing the same thing i mean you'll ha- you'll want to have everybody you'll see so many people want to get on board get on that ship because you know he's going to be winning out there in new york so that would man that would make my heart happy as a jets fan to get eb running the ship out there in in Florham park that, that would be incredible 
Must have been thrilling for you last year. I mean, just to, to see the Chiefs win it all, you know, and oh. uh, just, uh, I mean, I, I know you're, you know, you're a Jet guy, you play for the Jets, but you also invested a lot of your career in Kansas City. So it must have, how thrilling was that to see Andy and, and those guys finally come through? Oh, it was great. Rich, I still have really close friends on the team, right? Anthony Sherman, Dustin Colquitt, guys like that, that I, you know, when you just see your friends get to experience that and get to go out there and not just play in it, but win that game. I mean, oh my goodness. And to come off the year before where they lost, you know, in the last second to the Patriots and that AFC championship game, to come off of that, to get back there, to win it, get over the hump, get in the Super Bowl and then win the Super Bowl. Yeah, you're right. And Andy Reid's the kind of guy that you, you man, you want that for him. Mm-hmm. You really want him to do well. You want the enemy to do well. You want those guys uh, to get that ring. I mean, in Kansas City, they they had the motto: we we come in as as uh, we come in as how was it? We but we leave as a family, right? We come as as teammates, leave as a family, and they really embody that. I mean, it isn't just sort of a, a pay lip service to some slogan we put on the wall. I mean. There really is a family atmosphere, family atmosphere out there, and you care about the other guys in that locker room. You care about the coaches, and so even four years later, after being, you know, leaving that, leaving that organization, to see those guys succeed was like seeing my brothers, you know, go out there and succeed. So I was really, really happy for them, and I'm continue to be happy for them. I mean, I, it just it must be so amazing to be a part of that team right now. Yeah, uh, they can win it, it all again. Uh, and it's again, it's this mixture of all stars with leadership and you don't, you don't see anything coming out of Kansas city, right? You don't see any of the bad pub. You don't see any of the, you know, stuff going on off the field. You see none of that. You just see going out there and winning. And then you see humble, uh, humble guys across the board. I mean, it really is impressive. Now, Mike, uh, why don't you catch the fans up on I, you do what you're doing now? You're doing so many different things. I know you're, you've become a scholar in your own right, and you have, you have your own podcast, which is called Three Point Stance. And I had the uh, privilege of being a guest on that once, and I think fans should check that out because you get really good guests on there. So catch us up. I mean, you're, you're like – we might have to call you Dr. DeVito soon, yeah, correct? That's, well, that's what I'm working towards, Rich. It's funny. It's like – I was able to get it done with my body, right? So, okay, I made it up to the to the top. I made it up to the to the top level. It's like, let me see what I can do with my brains now. Let me see if I can do the same thing. Now, I've been hitting my head against metal for two decades, so I'm a little bit behind the eight ball when it comes to what my brain can do. Uh, but but what I've seen is hard work really transcends football. And so uh, I've gotten two master's degrees in uh, religion and philosophy, and now I'm getting my, my PhD in philosophy. I just finished up my first semester at the University of Birmingham in the UK, uh, you know, one of the silver linings of this pandemic is with the young kids, it would have been hard for me to be a part of this PhD program right now because I would have had to spend a lot of time out in the UK. And I have three young boys, we would have been tough. Now, you know, everything's been put online um, because, you know, there's no travel and stuff like that. So it's allowed me the opportunity to continue to get or to get a start and a jump on my PhD writing and, and research without having to spend too much time in, in the UK. So that's been nice. Uh, we're going to see. We're going to see if hard work can close the distance. Uh, I, I think it can. I've, I've, I've been really enjoying it. Um, and so that's been a lot of fun. And then, yeah, the Three Point Stance, the podcast we're doing. And I'm grateful for those, my, my two co-hosts there with the Three Point Stance that kind of uh, uh, allow, you know, hold me up when, I, when I'm making mistakes. So they, they carry it. Well, I'm going to disagree with you. I, I think you're underselling yourself. I think you're pretty good at it. You know, I think you're definitely good at it. And I want the fans to know that back in the day when Mike was playing for the Jets, 
and I was covering the team back then, Mike was the guy you could always count on in the locker room. Even after a tough loss, he'd always be standing in front of his locker. You could always talk to him, win or lose. And not, not a lot of guys do that. Some guys <laughs> run, for, run for the exits after a tough loss, but Mike was always there, and he always provided you know, really thoughtful analysis after the game. And I always appreciated that, you know, with you. And uh, I, I'm just so happy to see you're, you're succeeding off the field in, in post-football life. That really means a lot, Rich. That means a lot coming for you. You, you guys are the best at what you, I'm talking. I, and I've been, I've seen different markets. Uh, I always loved it. I loved talking to you. I knew it wasn't going to be easy. I knew I had to be smart. I knew it was going to, and I wish I would have done a better job of, of recognizing what you guys are going through, too. I, I recognize how difficult it is. I think players should get a taste of the media life while they're playing so they can say, oh, wow, this is, this is not easy. I, I would have tried to be even better than I was uh, because it's, it's not easy. But, boy, Rich, I mean, you're gold standard when it comes to this stuff. And, uh, and you prepared me. So Kansas City was so easy. You know, you know when I'm, I'm sitting there in the locker room, I'm – you know, I'm working with you, and, and I know, boy, if I if I mess up, Rich is gonna hold me. He's gonna hold me to it, man. Uh, so I really, I mean, you you did such an excellent job, and so I I appreciated our time together, and and I I'm grateful for our friendship. Well, thank you. That means a lot to me, Mike. Uh, I really appreciate you stopping by and sharing some thoughts about you know the older Jets, the current Jets, and the Chiefs, who uh, in my opinion will be in the Super Bowl again. Uh, so thanks so much. Wish you well. Happy holidays to you and your family, and best of luck with the pursuit of the uh, PhD. Thank you so much, Rich. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. It's really an honor. Appreciate you, brother. And this is the third quarter, and you know what that means. We're going to go into the Twitter mailbag, pluck out a few of the best questions this week. And, of course, they're all dealing with the Jets' draft position and free agency and all sorts of stuff like that. And we're going to start with at T-BoneHU82. How many All-Pro and Hall of Fame quarterbacks were not the first quarterback selected in their draft class? Uh, Really interesting question in light of the current circumstances. And I did a little research here. Believe it or not, the last number one overall pick as a quarterback to win a Super Bowl was Eli Manning, who was the number one pick in 2004. When you go back to the entire Super Bowl era, not many have done it. Peyton, Aikman, Elway, Jim Plunkett, and Terry Bradshaw, the only other number one overall picks, all quarterbacks, to win a Super Bowl. So it's really not that common. Uh, you, you know, you see quarterbacks who are not overall one to, to do really well in the league. Of course, you know, Exhibit A is Tom Brady, who was number 199. So it's not necessarily that they're the number one overall pick or the third or fourth pick. We've seen plenty of busts at the number one, like Achilles Smith and Tim Couch and Jamarcus Russell. So there are plenty of mistakes made at the number one spot. Of course, with Trevor Lawrence, the, the evaluators I talk to say he's the best since Andrew Luck in 2012. Next, from Ike Mike at Mike Dragonetti with the second pick, maybe Panay Sewell for the offensive line? Or could Joe Douglas trade the pick for a, a, a more draft capital? The, you know, I don't know enough about Panay Sewell right now, Mike, to make a, you know, totally accurate, you know, guess on that. 
I would say this, though. I think Joe Douglas is very into drafting based on the importance of position. Puts an emphasis on the premium positions such as left tackle, quarterback, pass rusher. And if he drafts Panay Sewell, you know, you're probably playing him at right tackle. And I know that was one of the reasons why they preferred Becton over Wirfs last year in the draft. They they saw Kristen Wirfs as a right tackle, which a position does not have as much value as the left tackle. I'm not saying they won't draft Sewell at two. I'm just saying keep that in mind as we get closer to the draft. All righty. The next one goes from uh, at Ryan Cuck one. My question is, what the hell? And I don't have an answer to that, Ryan, but I just really like that question. What the hell? I think that really sums up what it's like after Sunday's win. And the next one comes from at Britt Simps. Does this diminish the chances of Gase being fired? Uh, no. The All the expectations from everybody I talk to and indications are that Adam Gase still will be fired at the end of the season. The Jets are still 1-13, which is totally unacceptable. And so, yes, I do expect him to be fired, I think. From talking to people around Gase and close to the situation, they too believe that he already knows he's on his way out. Next, from at 5858 Jack, do you think the owner will look to the general manager and put a partial blame on him for ruining the winless season? No, I don't think Christopher Johnson or Woody Johnson or whoever is the owner is going to be next year will look at Joe Douglas and say, oh, you're, you're the reason why we screwed up this, this 0-16. I do not expect that to happen. Uh, like I said in the first quarter, no one's to blame. It just happened. And I do think you can blame Joe Douglas for some of the, or a large share of where they are right now. Because let's be honest, he has not done a good job with this roster. I give him many kudos for drafting Makai Becton. I think he's a stud, and I think he'll be a blue-chip tackle for a long, long time if he stays healthy. But other than that, what other great moves has he made? I think Mims is good, but really, free agency was a bust. And so Joe Douglas needs to take a lot of responsibility for this, just as Adam Gase does. And let's see our next one from at Corey Lynch, NYJ. I like Marcus May and think the Jets should resign him to a reasonable contract. What is that number? I'm with you, Corey. I like Marcus. I'm not going to break the bank for him because I don't think he's a Pro Bowl level player, but he's a good, steady, free safety. He's a good person. He's a good locker room guy. I think you've seen his leadership come out at times this year. And I think you're probably looking at something in the 9 to $11 million a year category. I did some research. Uh, I think a comp could be LaMarcus Joyner of the Las Vegas Raiders, who's making $10.5 million per year. Probably somewhere in that neighborhood. The, the one advantage May has is that he is their top free agent. And he also has the advantage of the Robbie Anderson factor. That's what I'll call it. The Robbie Anderson factor is the Jets know they blew it last year with Robbie Anderson, and they don't want to lose another homegrown player. So I think they'll probably pony up a little extra just to keep Marcus May. And so that is why I think there's a reasonably good chance they make a strong effort 
to keep May. And the last one is at M underscore Montez 86. If Trevor Lawrence goes to Jacksonville, do you see Joe Douglas potentially making a move to bring in Carson Wentz over from Philly instead of going with Justin Fields or Zach Wilson at two? Really interesting question, of course, is that Philly connection with Douglas and Carson Wentz. But I do not see that happening. We think Sam Darnold's broken. Carson Wentz is really broken. Really broken. And he's got a big contract. He's got four years 98.4 left on his Philly contract. So the Jets trade for that contract. They inherit that money. That comes out to 24.6 a year, which is not terrible based on the overall quarterback market, but it's too much for a guy who has underachieved the last couple of years and a guy who I wonder about his mental toughness and a guy who's been injured a lot. Let's be honest. So I don't see the Jets making that kind of trade. That would cost them a number one pick. Why would you do that when you could just stay with Sam Darnold and try to fix him for a lot less money? So no, I do not see that happening. Back in a second. We'll finish out with a little more on the Trevor Lawrence situation. And I want to share with you a quote from a former general manager I was talking to for a couple of weeks ago for a story on Trevor Lawrence and the possibility of going to the Jets. Now, this GM, I won't mention his name, but he was in a Super Bowl with a journeyman quarterback. And so he can appreciate the value of a franchise quarterback. And this is what he said about the Jets. Remember, this was a couple of weeks ago. He said, quote, the Jets better the better the Jets better not win. I'm telling you, you can't afford to lose this kid. They're so painfully bad in every area on and off the field. They can't afford to lose this kid. They can't. This kid is a once in a moon, blue moon player. End quote. And so I don't mean to depress you even further, but that's how one very well-respected former general manager felt about the Trevor Lawrence situation. But I will counter that. With this, there are examples in history where the first pick didn't turn out as well as some of the quarterbacks that were drafted after him. And I give you an example. 2005, first pick, Alex Smith. A guy named Aaron Rodgers was drafted 24th. In 2004, Eli Manning was the first pick. You know, okay, that was an excellent pick. Philip Rivers at four, Ben Roethlisberger at eleven. Two guys that probably will be joining Eli Manning in the Hall of Fame someday. 1983, John Elway was the first pick. A great one. But at 14, you had Jim Kelly. And at 27, you had Dan Marino. And okay, yeah, the Jets passed on him. But the point is that you can find players, even great players, below the first pick in the draft. So I will leave you with that. Perhaps a little silver lining amid all this gloom. And I think the worst part of this situation, I think if you really want to be angry, you should just feel angry that the Jets are even in this situation. Uh, So many bad decisions, so much incompetence has put them in a situation where their entire fan base or virtually the entire fan base is rooting for them to lose a game. And there's really nothing worse in sports and in sports fandom when fans are reduced to rooting for losses. So blame the Jets and years of misery for getting to this point. And hopefully for their sake, for your sake, they can figure this out 
and avoid this kind of polarizing, divisive situation, which really does not feel good for anybody. And that's the end of this week's show. I'd like to thank Mike DeVito for stopping by. Really appreciated catching up with an old friend and former Jet. Thanks to my producer, Jeff Scopin. If you want to find Flight Deck, you can get us on any of the ESPN platforms, along with Apple, Google Play, and Spotify. Enjoy the week. Merry Christmas for those celebrating Christmas. Happy holidays, and we'll catch you next week on Flight Deck.